The Apostle Peter wrote to God's people, and he said this, You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is talking to these people about their lives before and after they came to Jesus. They used to be wandering, he says, like lost sheep. But now they've come to the shepherd. They're home and they're safe. And this morning we're going to see this New Testament truth reflected in the Old Testament. We are looking these weeks at 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. And what we've seen in the early chapters of this book is that we've seen God's king David anointed by one, just one, of Israel's 12 tribes. We've also seen a rival king and a rival kingdom set up in Israel. After the death of Saul, Saul's general Abner made Saul's son Ishbosheth king. His name, Ishbosheth, means man of shame. Now we might wonder what kind of parents would call their son that. But apparently they didn't. He became known as the man of shame. And the nickname actually fits him very well. Ishbosheth was a shoddy alternative to God's king. But we've learned that for several years, it seems the greater part of Israel followed this rival king. But in our passage this morning, we're going to see how Israel moved from Ishbosheth to David, from shame to the shepherd. We're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, through to chapter 5, verse 3. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 308, and in the large print, 473. Last week we saw that Abner died, and we're picking up here just as the news of Abner's death reaches Ishbosheth, who is roughly 75 miles away. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Banna and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon the Berothite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gatayim and have resided there as foreigners to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Banna, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth. And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. 
Then Rechab and his brother Banna slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Banna, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is God's word. The first part of our passage describes the end of the rival kingdom. From the very start, this rival kingdom has been based on human strength. It began, in fact, not with Ishbosheth, but with his father Saul. Saul became king because Israel demanded a king such as all the other nations have. And they wanted that kind of king because they wanted to be like all the other nations. But they soon find out Saul couldn't save them. As strong as he was physically, he couldn't be their shield against their enemies. In fact, he died fighting their enemies, the Philistines. So did three of his sons. But even though God had anointed his own king, David, Many in Israel decided to persist with the house of Saul. They followed Ishbosheth. But the power behind Ishbosheth was Abner. He was the strong man who plotted and who fought on Ishbosheth's behalf. But now Abner's gone. And we find this rival kingdom disabled by despair. You may have noticed as we read chapter 4, there are lots of useless or severed body parts in this chapter. They're scattered all through chapter 4. The picture 
Now the message is this rival kingdom is like a broken body. There are even more body references than were given in the NIV translation. Verse 1 literally reads, When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his hands grew slack. The power he had been depending on is gone. And any confidence Ishbosheth had, it just drains away. He loses his grip. And all Israel along with him. Israel's alarm in verse 1 is probably a combination of losing Abner and then seeing Ishbosheth turn to jelly after Abner's death. But we might wonder well, is there anyone else they can turn to in the house of Saul? Does this rival kingdom have any other candidates? Any strong man who might rise up and lead them and fight their battles for them. Well, the writer of 2 Samuel seems to anticipate that question. He tells us Ishbosheth does have a nephew, the son of his brother Jonathan. But look what we're told about him in verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. This verse has given us a flashback to seven years before this. When the news came that Saul and Jonathan were dead. There was panic after that. And Mephibosheth was injured in the panic. At this point, he is now 12. But he's not going to save the house of Saul. In this society, a leader has to be able to fight. So here's the status report on the rival kingdom Abner is dead, Ishbosheth's hands have gone slack. And Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. This rival kingdom is broken. It's crippled. It's no wonder the people in this kingdom are disabled by despair. And the Bible tells us that's how it goes for every rival kingdom. Every regime or every movement that shuts out God's king. Sooner or later, the strong men or the strong ideas that it was built on, those things crumble away. And all that's left is crippling despair. Last week I read an article about the musician and filmmaker Woody Allen. He turns 80 in a few weeks. And he's working at the moment on his 47th film. He's renowned as a tireless worker. And this article explained what it is that drives Woody Allen's activity. He's an atheist. And his atheism leads him to believe in the hideous, empty loneliness of existence. His belief in a barren, godless eternity 
leaves him feeling like a tiny flame flickering in an immense void. If you stop to think about that, you will be disabled by despair if that's what you believe. So how does Woody Allen get through life? The article tells us he distracts himself with sex, jazz, laughter, and films. Atheism might seem attractive. It might seem attractive because it allows us to say we are not accountable to any higher authority in our lives. But if we pause long enough to think about the emptiness of atheism, the result is despair. Back in Israel, it may have sounded good to Ishbosheth, setting himself up as a rival to God's king. But his kingdom is collapsing. There's nothing to hold it together. And soon things get even worse. This rival king is betrayed from within. Verse 2 introduced two men called Banna and Rechab. And the key thing to notice about these two men is that they are from the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe as Ishbosheth and Saul. So they're just about family to Ishbosheth. And they have some credentials as warriors. We're told that they lead raiding bands. And so we might wonder if they'll strengthen this crippled kingdom. But in fact, they don't help Ishbosheth, they help themselves to his head. While he's taking his afternoon nap, they sneak into his house, stab him in the stomach, which kills him, and then we're told they cut off his head. These men have a plan, and Ishbosheth's head is part of their plan. We said a moment ago, it seems attractive to break away from God's authority. It sounds good to be part of an alternative kingdom. But any kingdom without God becomes a kingdom of every man for himself, every woman for herself. It becomes a kingdom where you are foolish to sleep easy in your bed. Because someone might take the opportunity to get one up on you. These minor strongmen, Banna and Rechab, they might be from Ishbosheth's tribe, but they're not interested in helping him. As far as they're concerned, they've got to look out for themselves. And they can see an opportunity here. They decide Ishbosheth's head will serve them better off than on. And so we have this gross Situation that's described in verse 7. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Outside the kingdom of God, 
the ultimate authority is mine or yours or whoever's stronger than me and you. So it's every man for himself. It's a kingdom of betrayal. It's a kingdom where even brothers will stab each other in the back if they see an opportunity in it. In the case of Banna and Rechab, they see an opportunity for reward. That's why they don't just kill Ishbosheth, they take his head on a 75 mile hike. And when they deliver the head to David, you'll notice they claim they're serving God. This day the Lord, that's God, has avenged my Lord, that's David. Now it is true, God is sovereign. These guys have certainly not taken God by surprise. There is an ultimate sense in which even evil men serve God's purposes. But that doesn't excuse the evil man. The fact is these guys couldn't care less about God. They want a reward from David. And they are simply saying what they think David wants to hear. What they've done is pure betrayal for personal gain. And so we mustn't get distracted by the theological spin they try to put on it. Banna and Rechab might be trying to profit from God's kingdom, but they're not part of God's kingdom. They are carrying on the crusade of the rival kingdom, the kingdom of every man for himself. And they're just like the Amalekite back in chapter 1. Maybe you can remember him. He brought David news of Saul's death. He claimed to have killed Saul. And he was looking to gain from that. But David did not react the way the Amalekite expected him to. And it goes exactly the same way for Banna and Rechab. Look again at verse 9. David answered Rechab and his brother Banna, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed him. They, they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Banna and Rechab are representatives of the rival kingdom. And their rival kingdom is overtaken by justice here. David didn't rejoice over Saul's death, and he won't rejoice over Ishbosheth's. He gives him the grace of a proper burial. At least he buries what's left of him. And David brings justice to Ishbosheth's killers. Yes, it is pretty grisly justice. But it has a purpose. 
These men are hung up as a signal to Israel. God's kingdom will not be built on injustice. It will not be built on betrayal. It will not reward evil. It will not be a place where the ends justify the means. The kingdom of God does not need the help of evil men. David made that clear to Banna and Rechab in verse 9. He said, the Lord delivers me, thanks. I don't need the help of evil men and their evil deeds. I don't need your sin to bring in God's kingdom. So in the end, there were no winners in this rival kingdom. There was lots of fighting for position, but in the end, they all lost. That's how it goes for every rival kingdom. People spend their lives fighting for recognition and position and reward. But the New Testament says God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That man is God's anointed king, Jesus Christ. And on that day, what will matter is not how high we climbed at work or how much stuff we managed to gather up or how much applause we got from this world. What will matter on that day is whether we bowed the knee to God's king. Whether we came to him on his terms, not our terms. That means there are plenty of religious people who will be caught out on that day. Because they never really bowed to Jesus. They never really accepted his authority. Their religion was all about trying to manipulate God and get him to further their own plans. They treated God like a genie in a bottle. Rub him the right way or say the right words and he'll do what you want. That's what Banna and Rechab tried to do with David. They presented him with a severed head and they thought he would give them what they wanted. When you and I come to God with the same kind of attitude, we're coming to him the wrong way. The last part of our passage shows us the right way to come. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, we see Israel coming to the true king. What we have here is an Israel that has come to her senses at last. From the start, Ishbosheth had been a pathetic alternative to David. And in fact, we've seen Israel's foolishness started long before that. It started way back in 1 Samuel when Israel came to the prophet Samuel and demanded, give us a king like the other nations so we can be like the other nations. And God gave them what they asked for. They got Saul, the king according to their own heart. And now, many years later, 
and plenty of heartache later, Israel finally comes to her senses. She comes to the king according to God's heart. We've noticed before how King David teaches us plenty about King Jesus. And we find that here. As Israel comes to David, they recognize three things about God's king. First, he's their brother. Chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In other words, they're saying, you're one of us. You're not some usurper. We share the same ancestry. You have a right to rule over us, David. It's taken Israel a long time to get to this point. David has always been one of them. But they've been living in denial of that. They've been treating him like he was a usurper. But God is not in the business of putting aliens on the throne. He rules his people through one of his people. When God sends us a king, he sends one of us. He sends us a brother who knows us. The New Testament tells us that's just as true of Jesus as it was of David. John's gospel tells us this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That passage makes it clear. The word is referring to Jesus Christ. He's our own flesh and blood. Galatians says God sent his son born of a woman. Hebrews says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. When you and I come to Jesus, we're not coming to some alien king, someone who's been imposed on us from on high. We're coming to the one who left his throne in heaven. Not to come and sit on an earthly throne, but to lie in an animal's feeding trough. Just as helpless as any other baby. Among the dirt and the hay. He was born the way you and I were born. He grew up in the organized chaos of an ordinary family. He learned a trade and became a working man. He was a carpenter. And the New Testament says he was tempted in every way, just as we are. God's king is not a stranger to the human race. He joined the human race. He knows what it's like to be you. You can trust King Jesus. He's your brother. Back in Hebron, Israel says to David, you are also our savior. Verse two. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns 
All of that is documented back in 1 Samuel. Saul had the throne, but Saul only cared about himself. It was David who fought for Israel and saved Israel again and again. Saul was the king, David was the savior. And now finally, Israel receives her savior as her king. Jesus Christ didn't go to fight the Philistines for us. The enemies he took on were the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And the New Testament says he triumphed over those enemies, not by swords and chariots, but by the cross. He saved us by dying in our place, paying our debt, breaking all the claims those enemies had on us. There are lots and lots of rival kings in this world. Lots of things we can give our allegiance to. But there is only one savior in this world. And so we are wise to receive our savior as our king. That's what Israel does. And Israel also accepts God's king as her shepherd. Also in verse 2, the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall become their ruler. I understand that as a description of how David will rule. We're not being told two separate things about him there. The point is he will rule not as a tyrant but as a shepherd. We learned back in 1 Samuel that David actually was a shepherd. That was his job back on his dad's farm. And being a shepherd was close to the lowest job you could have. But here, God is giving this shepherd the highest job available. He will shepherd God's people. They will be his flock and he will care for them. And it's important to realize by calling his king a shepherd, God is upending the normal picture of kingship. Certainly the kings of the other nations didn't act like shepherds. That's not how they ruled. First Samuel described what their rule was like. They bled the people dry for their own gain. They took instead of giving. And Saul was just like that. But God's king is to be different. He will tend his people. He will lead them to green pastures and quiet waters. He will go with his people, even through the darkest valley. And he will use his rod and staff not to beat his people, but to guide them and warn them away from danger. David didn't do that perfectly. David was a shepherd king. He didn't turn out to be the shepherd king. Only Jesus Christ could say, I am the good shepherd. Only Jesus Christ could say, I am the shepherd who not only tends his sheep and leads his sheep, 
I am the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I don't just go with them through the darkest valley. I have gone ahead of them. I have passed through the valley of death and come back from death. So I can bring my sheep back from death. So let's ask ourselves, is it hard to come to a king like that? Is it a risk to surrender our lives to a king like that? What greater king could there be than a king who lays down his life for his people? There's one final thing to notice here. When we come to God's king, we are coming to the covenant king. Verse 3, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. A covenant is a binding commitment. What we're being told here is that this relationship between the king and his people is for times of sickness as well as times of health. It's for times of poverty as well as times of riches. God's king is not a fair weather king. God's king sticks to his commitments. He stays with his sheep. And this is a two-way covenant. The people are committing to have him as their king. Even during the times when they don't understand. Even at the times when he gives them something different than they asked him for. We're not given the precise details of this covenant at Hebron. But the covenant of King Jesus has been signed with his own blood. We can trust him with our lives because he first gave his own life for us. And so if you don't know him, if you're still outside his kingdom, come to him. He's your brother. He knows you. He's your only savior. And he will shepherd you all the days of your life. Let's praise him together as we sing, Oh, what a mystery I see.